Chapter 22 The Salt Cod Fiasco Plenty of Fish, No Chips I always tell people that if I'd known the truth, there's no way in my right mind I'd have ever come to work for the company. As Trident's chief accountant for 23 years, Steve Okerlund had plenty of experience under the financial hood of the business, and given the way things worked in the early days, he had plenty of experience in the fish plants, too. When the salmon ran back to Alaska each summer, just about everyone from Trident ran to Alaska after them, including the company CFO. As a result, Okerlund hasn't seen only the company books, he's seen just about everything. Okerlund sat down with Chuck Bundren in January of 2010 to banter about the early years. By that time, Okerlund had technically retired from Trident, but it's common knowledge that most folks from the inner circle never really retire from the business they've spent decades building from scratch. When first asked to share his recollection, Okerlund said with characteristic dry wit, I'm not saying anything. Hell, I might tell you the truth. Nonetheless, he eventually offered a few details about the small company he'd walked into through the side door. Okerlund graduated from Washington State University in 1975 and went right to work as an auditor for the accounting firm Moss Adams. Eventually, he was assigned to review the books at Trident Seafoods. I didn't really start working for Trident until January 1, 1984, but I'd actually worked on the audit for a couple of years, so I began learning about Trident in 81 or 82. That's when I first met Chuck. Trident was a small, progressive company and was doing very well, but they had a few stumbling blocks, and that's what probably gave rise to Chuck hiring me. They were going too fast and had a few setbacks. Prone to understatement, Oakland explained what he meant by setbacks. The Akutan plant had just burned down. The salt cod fiasco was going on. We were still running the Maxon shipyard, and there were definitely some challenges. They needed some help. I'd never lost money before I hired Steve, Bundren acknowledged with a smile. But I knew I was going to end up losing money, and that's when I decided I needed a good accountant. I don't think he thought it was as bad as he discovered later on. It was really quite a mess. Chuck said it was just a few minor problems that needed a little work to clean up, Okerlin recalled. But the salt cod thing was not just a little problem to clean up. I don't know how many trips he took going over there to Portugal, but I remember him coming back trip after trip. And the progress, Okerlin said, wiping his brow. Boy, oh boy, was it slow. For Chuck, it was like an adventure. He had no idea what he was getting into or the problems he'd encounter, but he just took it on the go and dealt with it on a day-to-day -day basis. That went on for a long, long time. What was Bundrant trying to prove by putting up salt cod way out in the Aleutians on the island of Akatan and selling it to Portugal? Like everyone else in the Alaska whitefish business, he was trying to prove that Americans could harvest, process, and sell the entire groundfish quota for the Bering Sea and Gulf of Alaska. That was the opportunity and the challenge for the U.S. industry. Thanks to Ted Stevens, the gauntlet had been thrown on the table by the Magnuson-Stevens Act, and American fishermen 
had fresh opportunity to wrestle groundfish away from the foreign fleets. But instead of setting a date-certain deadline for eliminating foreign harvesting and processing within the 200-mile U.S. EEZ, the legislation called for a measured takeover of the groundfish quotas through a process known as Americanization. Theoretically, this would give Americans first crack at the fish, but scooping up 2 million metric tons of groundfish was a huge undertaking, and it wasn't all that simple. Since most of the tonnage was Alaska pollock and flatfish such as yellowfin sole, rock sole, and arrowtooth flounder, fish with very few, if any, markets in the U.S., Norwegian-American fishermen began the long process of Americanization by targeting a species they already understood from the old country, and that was codfish. In addition to harvesting and consuming a lot of North Atlantic cod themselves, Norwegian fishermen and processors had long ago developed export markets for salt cod in Portugal, Spain, and Brazil, where it was a staple known as bacalao. Norway also had a centuries-old tradition of air-drying unsalted cod for stockfish. As early as the first century AD, Norway produced stockfish and exported it to England. Modern markets for stockfish developed in Mediterranean countries as well as West Africa, and the leathery planks of cod are said to be Norway's oldest sustained export commodity. Since codfish, salt cod, and stockfish were already familiar to crabbers of Norwegian descent, it was reasonable that North American fishermen from Ballard would look to their past to find hope for their future in Alaska after Bering Sea king crab populations crashed in 1981. At first, fishermen such as Chuck's partner Corey Ness and fellow countrymen Einar Langesatter and John Johannesson reconfigured their crabbers, which included the Royal Viking, Pacific Viking, Royal Atlantic, and Oceanic, to trawl for Pacific cod and then salt the product right aboard their vessels. Catching, splitting, and salting cod on board a rolling boat proved difficult enough. Selling it proved even more difficult. Getting started required a market research visit to an area in northwest Norway known as the Lofoten Islands. My brother Magni and I took a trip to Norway to see some of the people at Lofoten, Corey recalled. We stopped in Alasen, and we signed a contract with a guy there to buy salt cod off our boats. It seemed simple enough at the time, but it wasn't very practical. That didn't pan out for us, salting on the boats. We lost money right and left on that. But the salt cod game was far from over. After that, he said, is when Trident started to salt fish at Akatan. It wasn't just salt cod Chuck was after, Oakland recalled. It was lots of salt cod. The more the better, he said, recalling the fever pitch of the operation and Bundrant's enthusiasm. Let's get those costs down and produce more. And then it's diversification. So let's go for stockfish, and let's go for filatoni and other products that we had absolutely no expertise or markets to sell it to. Filatoni is a product preferred in the Italian market that is very similar to salt cod, except that instead of simply splitting and salting the headed and gutted codfish, the cod are first filleted, removing the backbone and ribs. The end product is an individual, skin-on, salted fillet that is typically made from smaller cod and is easier for consumers to reconstitute in fresh water 
and cook. I wasn't a trident yet, Oakland recalled. But others who were there tell stories of stockfish hanging on the wooden racks at Akatan with the birds and everything. Bundrant wasn't the only one caught up in the salt cod rush. Everybody lost money on it, Corey echoed. Some of that fish came down here to Seattle, to a plant down by the Duwamish River. Some guys brought drying equipment from Norway and were drying it down there by the First Avenue Bridge, but that didn't work out for them either. Nevertheless, it looked like an opportunity at the time, and in many ways, it was the only opportunity for Alaska crabbers and crab processors to keep busy after the king crab went bust. Furthermore, it offered a chance for American fishermen and Trident Seafoods to wrestle at least some of the resource away from the foreign fleets. U.S. fishermen had a harvesting priority over foreign fishermen, and U.S. processors had a processing priority over foreign processors. So legally, Alaska had the right of first refusal for the fish. The catch-22 of the program was that it was difficult for American entities to win formal allocation of that quota through the North Pacific Fishery Management Council if they couldn't demonstrate that they could successfully harvest, process, and sell the quota they wanted. It was a flawed system that worked very well for the foreign fleets. Countries such as Japan, which controlled the majority of the markets for Alaska cod and pollock, could manipulate their import quotas to ensure there was no place for other Alaska product to go. To break the stalemate, the council adopted what became known as the fish and chips policy, which provided quota incentives to foreign entities willing to share their processing technology and their markets. Direct foreign fishing quota and joint venture processing quota were allocated on a preferred basis to those countries that offered something in return to help American fishermen and processors develop harvest methods, processing technology, and markets for their products. One of the countries involved in the program was Portugal. Bundrant helped secure a fishing quota for the Portuguese, who jumped at the chance to harvest and process salt cod for the Portuguese bacalao market. In exchange for a promise to open its markets for salt cod, in 1984, Portugal was granted entry to the USEEZ for one beam trawler, which targeted cod, pollock, and flatfish. The Portuguese were driven by the opportunity to fish in U.S. waters. Bundrant was driven by the opportunity to access Portuguese markets while proving to the U.S. government that American harvesters and processors had the wherewithal to catch, process, and sell all of the codfish off Alaska themselves. The timing looked good because the Portuguese market had been dominated by Atlantic cod from the east coast of Canada. However, the Canadian resource was crashing famously, and it looked like the ideal time to jump into salt cod and fill the void with Pacific cod from Alaska, where the resource was actually increasing. We had to show we could utilize the product before we could take it away from the foreign fleets, Bundert recalled. So we bought the first Botter 182s for Pollock and three Botter 440 saltfish machines for cod. The Norwegians said it was no problem. That was the biggest mistake I ever made. I got together with a guy who'd already been run out of Norway. He had some knowledge of how to produce it, but I never realized the politics involving selling it. It was a fish and chips deal where we'd let the Portuguese in if they'd open their markets for us. Well... 
They came in and got their fish. Then they went home and closed the door. Here we'd bought three Botter 440s and were producing 200,000 pounds of finished product per day. That ends up to be a lot of fish by the end of the month. We loaded ship after ship for this supposed market, but it went the wrong way. The foreign exchange rate wasn't as good as it should have been, and pretty soon, the prices were less than what our costs were, and we had a hell of a mess. The currency screw-up against the dollar was probably the biggest problem looking back on it, Bundert continued, as well as the politics of knowing how to deal with these guys. I'll never forget, after several trips over there, I got to meet with the highest-ranking guy in the fisheries, the Minister of Fisheries. He invited me to his home. He had a chauffeured car and a huge house, four stories tall and all marble. Mr. Bundrant, he said, I'm just a poor government servant, just trying to bring in seafood from the U.S. He said he only made $600 a month. I looked around at the house, and he didn't look very poor to me. I said, you sure married well. He said, Mr. Bundrant, what you need is an agent. He was trying to tell me that in order to get codfish into his country, I had to hire somebody. I just read about foreign bribery scandals in Japan, and I knew better than that. I told him, I don't think so. Then I went to Washington, D.C. to talk to Ted Stevens, who was an up-and-coming senator in those days. He was becoming pretty strong, but this sort of problem was beyond his reach. I'll never forget some little GS-13 bureaucrat came in and told him, you stay out of this business. Portugal is too important of an ally to us. We're not going to close any bases in the Azores over some saltfish. And that was that. That's how it worked in the early days of Americanization. U.S. fishermen and processors would fight tooth and nail to reserve some quota from the North Pacific Council, which was under the supervision of the U.S. Commerce Department. But if the deal didn't really satisfy the foreign entities partnering in the operation, they would beat a path to Washington, D.C., and make a power play of their own through the U.S. State Department, oftentimes wielding a powerful threat that had nothing whatsoever to do with fish. Accustomed to trading away fishery resources for decades, U.S. diplomats found it hard not to cave in to the pressure. That's what generated the tiff in Ted Stevens' office. And as Bundren put it, I knew then I was screwed. Chapter 22, Sidebar, Akatan, Alaska, 99553. 1900 miles from Ballard, Akatan saw its first economic venture when the Western Fur and Trading Company established an outpost there in 1878. A small cod fishery began, but Akutan's first major maritime development was a whaling station built on the southern shore of the harbor in 1912. Though the great days of Nantucket whaling were over, natural whale oil was still a valuable ingredient in high-end lubricants, soaps, and cosmetics, and oil from sperm whales was used in the production of nitroglycerin. The primary buyer of Akutan whale oil was Procter & Gamble, maker of ivory soap. Owned and operated by American Pacific Sea Products, the whaling station remained active until World War II when it shut down and Aleut residents of the village were evacuated to Ketchikan. The Navy leased the whaling station property as a refueling station for Russian freighters, 
carrying war supplies across the North Pacific from Siberia. Resettled after the war, the city of Akatan is located on the north shore of the harbor, across the water from the remnants of the whaling station and fuel depot. The Trident Seafoods plant is also located on the north shore, approximately half a mile west of the village. During the height of the king crab fishery in the Bering Sea, Akatan Harbor regularly offered shelter to more than a dozen floating crab processors. When the king crab fishery collapsed in 1981, the floaters pulled anchor and scuttled away. But Akatan's modern history was just beginning. Recognizing the necessity to expand their business beyond crab and into ground fish, Bundrant and his partners set about to build a new shore-based facility on a skinny stretch of beach beyond the eyes of the competition in Dutch Harbor and five hours closer to good fishing grounds, just the place for Bundrant to try something different again. The project began in 1981 with the construction of a seawall and a 55,000 square foot plant for processing salt cod and stockfish. Level ground was non-existent, and the site itself had to be blasted out of the mountainside and graded flat with bulldozers. Nevertheless, the steep slope continued into the harbor, providing access to deep water as the new shoreline pushed seaward. The original plant burned in 1983, but was rebuilt in less than a year to process crab, cod, salmon, and pollock. By 1989, after serious setbacks in the market for salt cod, Bundrant was ready to make another bold move by adding a surimi line and competing directly with the Japanese-owned plants in Dutch Harbor. Once the Pollock surimi and filet plant expansion was completed in 1990, Trident's Akatan plant could process more than 3 million pounds of raw Pollock each day. Pollock fillets, Pollock blocks, Pollock roe, and Pollock surimi would become Akatan's bread and butter. With steady expansion over two decades and the addition of new bunkhouses in 2012, the plant now supports a workforce of 1,200 and operates year-round. Once just another crazy dream, Akatan is now the largest seafood processing plant in North America. hope that you enjoyed chapter 22, the salt cod fiasco. Plenty of fish, but no chips. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be the first to know when our next episode, The Fire at Accutan, is released on Wednesday, September 2nd. We appreciate you joining us, and we hope that this adventure inspires you to catch your own deck load of dreams.